Well, I got to tell you, I just love this church. I love the music that we sing, and I love you guys, the, the people that are here, this body. This is a, a great body, a great place to be at this little podunk church in Pacing, Utah, uh, because you guys are, you're my people. You are certainly my type of people. You guys are Jesus people. That's what uh, really draws us all together and brings us all together, isn't it? That we, we love Jesus. We're here because of Jesus and what he has done for us and our love for him. And that sets us apart. That brings us together so that we can love him together. We can worship him together. We can rejoice in him together. And I, I wonder, I'm sure that you guys have noticed before the instant bond that Christians have with one another. When we're out in the community, perhaps, we might see somebody who identifies himself as a Christian, maybe with a, a cross around their neck or a, a fish symbol on their car, and we have a, an instant draw to them, especially if we actually talk with them and we realize, oh, you got, you're an actual believer in Jesus, right? You don't just wear the stuff, but you actually believe in him. You actually love him. You actually trust in Jesus. Uh, we have a, an instant gravitation to those people who are believers, those people who are also united together with Christ. Uh, I've I have many opportunities throughout my life to have uh, engaged in conversation with people that I didn't even really know. People who were believers who had such a, an instant love for me and my family, and they were willing to serve our family, to open up their, their house to our family, or to uh, take us out and to, to buy us a meal, to take our kids out, to do something fun. This was something that they were willing to do, they were eager to do, they were excited about doing because of their love for Christ. And their love for him was transposed to us. We were the beneficiaries of their love for Jesus. And they were willing to want to bless us, even if it was something that uh, came at a cost to themselves to, again, fill up our, our gas tanker to take us out for a meal. This was something that put a smile on their face. And when... Uh, when I was a teenager, we were talking earlier in Sunday school about uh, mission trips. And as a teenager, I went to Mexico for a couple weeks a year for uh, four years. And while I was there, we were there serving these different churches. And they were not well off. They were pretty poor churches. And we were there to do vacation Bible schools or to build a, a church building to do these different mission projects. But every time we went, they had a a great love for us, and they were willing to to forego the blessings themselves so that they could bless us, and they would give us the best of their food, a, a true feast, and we know that they don't have the money to be buying this kind of food for us, to be putting this kind of feast on for us, and they would sit us in the, the best seats that they had while some of them are sitting on the floor just because they want to serve the church. They want to serve Christ. They want to serve the body of Christ. And this is a, a beautiful example of the church and the love that we have in the church, the unity that we have in the church. And this Christian hospitality, it's not something that was unique to those churches. It wasn't something that uh, is just unique to my experiences in, in Mexico or in, in different places where I've seen this amazing Christian hospitality. This is something that's been around for centuries and something that we're going to get a, a perfect opportunity to see in our text today. We have a, a premier example 
of the Christian hospitality in our text today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there and uh, we'll open up in prayer and then we'll jump into our study. God, I do thank you for this local church, for this church body, for Orchard Hills Bible Church, and for all the people that you have brought through here and uh, the many relationships and connections that have been made here and, and even beyond to think about the, the missionaries and uh, the people that have come here and they have gone out from here and to see your work multiplied even beyond these four walls is amazing. God, you do incredible, amazing things. And once again, we're unworthy to be able to even uh, gaze upon your work, to be able to be witnesses of your glory and the things that you do. But we thank you that we get to just sit back and look at all that you have done, how great of a God you are, how glorious you are, and the ways in, in which you're moving uh, in, in the first century and you continue to move today. And God, as we open up your word and we consider these things this morning, I pray that you would help us to focus and concentrate on you and that we would uh, walk away with what it is that you would have us to learn this morning and we would be drawn closer to you and closer to one another because of our time here this morning. God, we love you. Amen. All right, so we are at a, a rather interesting point in our study of 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians is a little bit unique in the way that it is sectioned out. It has very dramatic uh, transitions within the book. And so you can see uh, three rather uh, clear sections within the book. The first seven chapters are make up one section. Chapters 8 and 9 make up the middle portion, then 10 through 13 are uh, com comprising the latter section of the book. And in the first seven chapters, which we are now done with, we wrapped that up last week, they are largely dealing with uh, the, an elephant in the room that Paul is addressing these uh, false teachers that are amongst Corinth and the influence and the effect that these false teachers are having in the city of Corinth. And he is warning them against them and he is... Uh, focusing on their holiness. We see a lot of Paul's desire for the Corinthians to stand out and to live lives that are holy unto the Lord. Focusing on, encouraging them to focus their mindset on things above rather than on, than on things below. Not on the, the temporal things, not on just the, the tent of our body, just this uh, clay pot that is it's nothing really, but to focus on eternity, on heaven and what is awaiting for us in heaven. He is spurring them on to make sure that they are, uh, again, living lives of holiness, that they are being encouraged and challenged in the right ways. And all along, he is defending himself and his apostleship, the authority that he has to be able to speak into their lives over and against these false teachers, these super apostles. And while he's doing this, he is really trying to drive home the point and make sure that they know how much he cares about them. That he wants them to know that he has a, a deep abiding love for them. And we saw that even last week as we were closing out this section, this first section of the first seven chapters of Second Corinthians, when he says that he rejoices that in everything he has confidence in them. And so he's uh, talking about this confidence and this joy that he has in them, even so much so that he's willing to, to call them out. He's willing to uh, be the one to have these uncomfortable conversations when needed. 
Well, from here, he makes, again, a, a rather uh, stark transition into chapters 8 and 9, so much so that some people have suggested that 2 Corinthians is actually two letters that have been spliced together, just kind of cut and pasted together. I don't believe that at all. I don't think we have evidence for that. But that's just a testament to how stark these transitions are from chapter 7 into chapter 8 and chapter 9 into chapter 10. And in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to bring up this matter of the collection. They're taking up a collection for the saints. He's going to be talking about giving in general. And we'll get into that uh, today and in the following weeks. And then he, the last section that Paul has in his writing is from chapters 10 through 13, where he really kind of doubles down on his expectations from the Corinthians to excommunicate these false teachers, not just to be aware of them, not just to be mindful of them, but they need to do something about it. And so this morning, we find ourselves again in the second section, uh, starting in chapter 8 and going into chapter 9, where Paul is going to be dealing with this matter of the collection, as he calls it, uh, gathering up of funds so that he can bless another church. And I've titled our, our message this morning, uh, One Church in Three Cities. And so we see this, this idea of the one unified church of God, the universal church of God, what we call the invisible church of God, the fact that we as Christians are all in the body of Christ. So we have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We have unity with other Christians that, again, like I mentioned, are uh, possibly in different states, different countries. We are unified through the bond that Christ, that we have in Christ and through his blood. And yet we have different local churches, different local assemblies that make up smaller groups of this larger universal body of Christ. We have what we refer to as a, a smaller KC, or a lowercase c church, these local assemblies, the visible church. And we are going to be looking this morning at three different churches that we see in three different cities. However, I want us to keep in mind that they are all representing the one universal church of God. They're representing the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so, uh, we're going to begin our study by looking at the church at Corinth. And I know I told you to turn to 2 Corinthians, but I'm going to start by reading in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, back when Paul opens up the, the book, I really like how he refers to the Corinthian church. He doesn't call them the Corinthian church, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, so he's referring to them as the church of God. And they just happen to be in this city in Corinth, in the country of Greece. So to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and then he defines what a church is. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That is what it means to be a part of the church of God, to be a saint who is sanctified, who calls upon the Lord, who... No matter where you're at, in every place, they call upon the Lord Christ. So we're looking at this church of God, which just happens to be at Corinth. And back in our, our text, in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, we see that Paul begins by making an appeal to this church, the church of God, which is at Corinth. And he says, Now, brethren, we wish, 
wish to make known to you the grace of God. So he's talking to this church of Corinth. He wants them to know something. He's appealing to them, making known to them the grace of God. And uh, he's going to launch into, as Joseph already read this text for us, the, the issue of taking up of this collection. And he does so in a way that kind of suggests that they already know. He, he doesn't really spell out what this collection is for. He doesn't uh, have to introduce this as a new topic because they do, in fact, already know this is a collection that isn't a surprise to them. This is not the first time that the Corinthian church is hearing about this collection that is being taken up. In fact, let's go back to 1 Corinthians again. In 1 Corinthians 16, we can see that Paul has already brought up this issue of collecting these funds. So in 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And so we see there in the very first verse that he refers to this collection of the saints. But not only that, he says now concerning the collection of the saints. Now in recent weeks, we've talked about the different letters that Paul has written to the city of Corinth. And we mentioned that 1 Corinthians isn't, in fact, the first letter that he wrote to them, that there was a letter before this that he mentions back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, that we refer to as the lost letter. And so this, uh, in this lost letter, we can assume that he was speaking to them about the collection that he had made, that he was requesting that they make to the saints because uh, this phrase that we see at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning, that's a common phrase that we see all throughout 1 Corinthians. And we believe that that phrase is there because not only did Paul first send this lost letter to Corinth, but that Corinth sent a responding letter to Paul. And they had all kinds of questions for Paul in this letter. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians, we'll see him use this phrase. He'll say, now concerning uh, meat sacrificed to idols, for example. And then he'll launch it to what they were to do about idols. So the presumption is they had a question about, oh, what about this meat that is sacrificed to idols? Are we able to eat that? And so Paul in 1 Corinthians is responding using this, uh, this layout now concerning, and then he launches into the answer. Or in chapter 7, he'll say, now concerning marriage, and answer their question in, that they had in reference to marriage. Well, here he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And so Again, we can assume that Paul had already communicated to them either in his first letter, the, the lost letter, or perhaps in person about the need for them to be collecting money to send to some saints who are in need. And the fact that he is now saying now concerning is evidence to us that they were asking a question about this, which is a good thing. So it would appear that, that Paul had, again, mentioned this prior and now he is answering these questions that the, the saints at Corinth had about how to support these other saints. So he's, um, he's going to give them instruction on what to do. So it would seem that they're asking in a, a, a 
they're responding in a positive way to Paul, saying, okay, well, yeah, we want to get on board with that. We want to give to these other saints. How do we do it? What are the, the means and the methods that we need to do in order to bless these other saints? Uh, can, we, can we give on your app, right? Can we give on your website? Do you take PayPal? Uh, Bitcoin, is that okay? Well, help us know how to give to these people. And so now Paul is responding to them and he's telling them, well, now concerning this gift to the saints, let me tell you what to do. And he says not to give through PayPal or, or crypto, no money, money orders, but he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take money and to set it aside each week so that when I come, we don't have to take up a, a collection randomly. You guys don't have to uh, scramble to get these funds in, but you have that money set aside and it's there prepared and ready, which tells us a couple of things. It tells us that he wants them to be thinking ahead of time and where, where your money goes, your, your heart's going to go there too. So they're going to be thinking and praying for these saints and if they're doing it on a weekly basis, then it's going to be building. It's going to be growing, right? Uh, he tells them, when you guys gather together to, to bring these gifts with you. This is often used talking about how uh, we're together on the, the first day of the week. This is one of the texts that is used in the, the Sabbatarian type of conversations. But we need to realize that uh, this collection is being taken up for a purpose. They're bringing all these funds together and they're building this collection so they can bless these saints. And so this is not something that's just a, a good practice for the Corinthians, not just something that is good advice for the Corinthians. I think this is a good practice for you and I to uh, implement in our own use of money and our own dealing of funds. This is something that I personally uh, utilize in the way that we budget our money. I'll take a, a little bit of money each month and uh, set that aside, aside from our gifts to the church or to different ministries or organizations. We'll set money aside so that when we have a, a missionary come through and uh, they have some kind of presentation or need or a love offering that we have money that we've already set aside so we can give that to them. We as a church also practice this we have a, a missionary emergency fund so that we can set that money aside again so that if somebody that we support, maybe we don't support, if we are made aware of a need that somebody has, we don't have to take up a collection and do some kind of special gift in the moment. But we have that money already set aside. Last year, we were able to dip into this fund when the bachelors were being threatened with blackmail and they had to leave the country. We didn't have to say, all right, well, let's, let's figure out what to do. Let's take up this, this fund for for our friends, our missionaries that we support. We already had that money set aside. So I think this is a good practice that we can all uh, employ and, and really benefit from. Um, so going back to, to 2 Corinthians and trying to figure out a little bit more about this, this collection that's being taken up. If we look a little bit farther down in verse 10, we can learn three things about this collection. Uh, chapter 8, verse 10 provides us with three pieces of information that are helpful concerning this collection. It says, uh, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is for your advantage. Now, this is where, where I'm pointing at, the latter part of verse 10. It says, for your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to do it, to desire to do it. So we see there that this collection began a year ago. So again, not new information to the Corinthians. They've been aware of this collection, aware of this need. It's something they've been working on for a while. So every Sunday they're coming together, they're bringing their funds. And this collection 
theoretically, is to be building and building and building so that it can be more beneficial to the church that it's going to be going to. It can fulfill their needs for this financial gift. Second thing that we realize or that we see and learn in this verse is that Corinth was the first to begin setting aside these funds. Even in the midst of all their own troubles, all the stuff that they're going through, they had this desire to to set aside these funds, and they began to set aside these funds. We, we typically don't think of Corinth as the ideal church, right? When we're thinking of a, a church to mimic and model, Corinth isn't at the top of the list. But as we've seen, even in recent weeks, this is kind of a, a nice section for the Corinthian church. In the latter part of chapter 7 and chapter 8, Paul is commending this church for the way that they are repenting for their godly sorrow and how they've been handling this situation. And uh, they're coming around to Paul. They have this great zeal and love for Paul, this desire to be with Paul. And now he's reminding them, remember, you guys, you were the first ones to, to give to this, this collection. You guys were the first ones to jump on board and really give to this ministry. And not only that, he, he goes on in there. And the third thing we see in, in the latter part of that verse is that they uh, had been the ones who first had this desire. So they were the ones to kind of help spearhead this campaign of building up this collection for these saints who were in need. They had the desire, first of all, to do this. And while I'm sure that it was Paul who initially had the, the vision and the desire to bless this church, that he was kind of driving this with his own vision, the Corinthians, they, they grabbed onto this desire, and they should be commended for that. They grabbed on and they kind of adopted Paul's love for this church, Paul's zeal for, uh, for, for blessing the church. And as we, we looked at last week, this word zeal is uh, a, a great word combining love and hate, our love for something and our hatred for something. And so in their zeal to really bring together all these funds and to bless this church, we see their, their love for God, their love for Christ and their love for the body, for his bride. And along with that, their hatred for her suffering, for her hardship, because of their love for the church, for the universal church of God, they didn't want to see her suffer. They didn't want to see her hurting. And again, I, I hope that we can all see the throughout this passage and throughout our study this morning, the great love that the local churches have for one another, that the universal church of God has amongst ourselves. We are to be known for our love. And several weeks ago, we sent out as a church a, a notification through our text, through our, through our app, that encouraged us to pray for the 10 million people of Somalia, the 30 million in Africa, 30 million in Morocco, 35 million in Algeria, and 80 million in Turkey, each of which are 99% Muslim or more. That is a lot of people. A lot of people who all need Jesus. 188 million people in five different countries. They all need Christ. And we should be praying for those people who need Christ. But we should also realize that there's a small percentage, less than 1% of those people who are true believers in Christ. And they are in hard places. They're in persecuted places. We should be praying for those believers as well. We should be praying for those Christians who are enduring hardship, who are going through a difficult time. We need to remember them in prayer as well. I heard just this last week that uh, in the last 30 days, 
there have been over a thousand people who have died in Nigeria alone. A thousand Christians who have been martyred for their faith. We need to be remembering our brothers and our sisters in Christ, in prayer. Not just being caught up with what are we doing here in this church. The church of God is much more broad than just Payson. We need to keep that in mind. We need to pray for them. In fact, let's Let's pray now. We'll pray for them and we'll get back to our study. God, we, we do thank you for your church. We thank you for your people. We know that your people are hurting. Your people are suffering. We know that you know that. That you are sovereign. You know all things. That You know the, the end from the beginning. There's nothing that surprises you. And yeah, God, let us not use that as an excuse to not be concerned with our brothers in Christ, our sisters in Christ, that we would be mindful of them. We would care for them. We would be praying for them. About a thousand people in one country in one month who went home to be with the Lord. And, and we get caught up in what's on TV tonight. God, help us to not use that as an excuse that we would be aware and concerned and praying for your body, that we would have unity in the universal church. God, we love you. Amen. All right, where were we at? We're talking about the zeal that the, the Corinthians had, this zeal, this passion that we should adopt. Uh, talking about how they were aware of this gift. This gift, Paul bringing it up in 2 Corinthians 8, not the first time they've heard about it. Uh, they were already aware of this campaign. In fact, they had committed to this campaign. They had such zeal and such burden, such desire that Paul says they were the first to, to give, to want to give. And yet, they haven't yet followed through. They still had some work left to do. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8, 11, where Paul says, But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire to do it, so there may also be the completion of your doing it. So, not just desiring to give this money, but actually following through to give it. So, uh, we also see this back in, in verse 6. We know that, Titus was likely the one to carry the, the severe letter, the third letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians, but he had another purpose in going as well. In verse 6, it says that uh, Paul had urged Titus that as he was previously, had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So Titus had a, a vital part in uh, spurring the Corinthians on to give to this collection. And uh, actually collecting these funds, this was kind of the, the project that had been given to Titus as he was seeking to be involved in this. And as Paul spends these next, again, two chapters talking about this collection as well as just giving in general, we would do well to consider who it is that this collection is going to, what it is that this collection is being made for. And so let's take a look at the, the second church that we want to highlight this morning, the Church of God at Jerusalem. The Church of God at Jerusalem. So as we saw when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 16.1, uh, Paul there, he had mentioned the church of the churches of Galatia. And so let's go ahead and turn over to the book of Galatians and see what it is that Paul says in Galatians to this church, or these churches rather, this is a region, and uh, what Paul is communicating to them as far as this 
collection is concerned. So in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, it says that after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, that's our church we're looking at, with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And we know, based on uh, Luke's diligent uh, study and record in Acts of the history, that he was headed up to the Jerusalem council in we can read about it in Acts chapter 15, and they were going up to try to figure out, well, what do we do with these new Gentile Christians? How do we handle uh, circumcision? How do we handle the law? Do these Gentile Christians have to first become Jews before they can become Christians, or can they just kind of jump over all this stuff that the Jews had to go through? What do we have to do with these Gentiles? And so uh, Paul goes up to this Jerusalem council with Barnabas and Titus, and he comes back to the Galatians and he gives them a report on what it is that they had decided at this first church council on what they're to do with the Gentiles. And of course, he's focusing on circumcision and uh, these legalistic matters that are pertinent, especially in Galatia. But down in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 2, he says this. He says, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So this was a concern that they had at the Jerusalem council that we have a lot of poor people, Paul, and I know that you're going to go off and you're going to go on your missionary journeys. Don't forget us, right? Uh, just like every rapper ever. Uh, don't forget where he came from, Paul. Uh, you need to remember your, your roots. Remember the, the saints that are here hurting in Jerusalem uh, and everything that we're, we're dealing with, everything that we're going through. And so... Uh, we, we do know that Paul had given to this church beforehand. In Acts chapter 11, Paul had taken a gift to Judea along with Barnabas, and uh, this was given to them, but this was a, a different gift. This was prior to the Jerusalem council, prior even to his first missionary journey. And yet the church at Jerusalem is still hurting. They're still in need. And so we need to ask ourselves why this church at Jerusalem was struggling, why they were in in need? What were the reasons for the need of the Jerusalem church? And just like we did in Sunday school, let's go back to the beginning of the church. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and consider when the church, not just the church at Jerusalem, but the church as an organization, as an organism, was birthed into existence in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on these uh, believers at Pentecost. And I'm actually going to read some of the same verses that uh, Greg read for us earlier. In Acts chapter 2, uh, we'll start in verse 41. As we, consider, um, as we consider this, remember that everybody had traveled there for this day of Pentecost. This wasn't just people that were local to Jerusalem, but they had, uh, especially Jews from all, all around, all these different countries, traveling to Jerusalem for this celebration, for this feast. All these Hellenistic Jews, these Jews that are from Greek countries, they have, been, uh, they have embraced Greek culture and yet kind of hold on to their, their Jewish identity. And so in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41, it says, So then those who had received this word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That's a good thing. That's a lot of birth, a lot of growth all at once. Verse 42 they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so we see uh, probably most obvious to us there at the end of those verses, the fact that they were selling everything, they were taking care of each other, a lot of love and compassion and hospitality amongst these believers here at this church in Jerusalem. But remember, this was right on the hills of Pentecost. So they were all there for a feast. There were a bunch of people and they were all coming to Christ and they had been traveling there from other places. These were refugees who had kind of taken root in Jerusalem because remember, that's where the disciples were. That's where the apostles were. We talked this morning about the command to go out, to start in Jerusalem and to expand into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The church wasn't really quick to obey that command. The disciples stuck around there. That's where they had uh, these people who were performing these miraculous works and these people who had walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who had the understanding and they were able to teach them. And so people stuck around in Jerusalem, which is great, but that means there's more mouths to feed. That means there's more people to house, more stuff to do. And that's why they were taking and selling their possessions and taking care of each other. And that was great. It said that everybody was that without need, but that's only sustainable for for so long. Uh, let's turn over to chapter 4, and we see that this continues. Chapter 4, verse 32, says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's, that's beautiful, this mindset that we're, we're one body, right? Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. Again, the apostles are still there, right, in Jerusalem. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. This all sounds great, but again, it, it takes a toll. People are selling off their property, selling off their land, and there are more people there than what had previously been there. This church is not just growing by addition, it's growing by multiplication at this point. There are many thousands being multiplied in this church. Everybody is there in this one church. They have a, a lot to, to care for. We can see that over in Acts chapter 6, in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, the Complaint, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, again, the, the Greek Jews, against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the Hellenistic Jews, they were still there, and they're uh, kind of fighting amongst each other. There's some tension amongst each other. But they're all here in Jerusalem, in this one church. There's a lot going on in this church. And so this is one aspect that... Uh, that we can see really adds to the, the need in Jerusalem. This is one of the things that they were struggling with, one of the things that they were dealing with in the Jerusalem church. In addition to this, uh, we see that, or we know that there was a lot of persecution taking place from both the Jews and the Romans. Remember that Jesus was killed by the Jews. They didn't like his message. They didn't like what he was saying. His disciples, the same, right? If they persecuted the master, they're going to persecute the student as well. 
they persecuted the teacher, they're going to persecute the student. Uh, there's really no difference there. The Jews uh, were offended by the Christians because they were saying there's only one Messiah, claiming that he had already come, and they didn't believe that. Remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred for uh, denying and rejecting the temple and the law. The Jews weren't on board with that. They were willing to kill and uh, persecute people for that. And this was something that was taking place primarily at the beginning in Jerusalem. This wasn't this was just the, the beginning of the persecution. It would become much worse later on. But at this time, there wasn't really a whole lot of persecution amongst the Romans. Christianity was still kind of seen as a, a sect of Judaism, so it was still welcomed and embraced, wasn't heavily persecuted at this time. However, there was still a lot of oppression from the Romans. We often think of Rome, or at least I, I guess, think of the Roman Empire is wealthy and mighty, that they were a, a great kingdom. And yet, we can fail to realize that it was still a, a caste system, that they still had uh, rankings within their, their hierarchy of classes. And so Caesar, of course, was well off being at the top of the caste system. Uh, those who were in Rome were well off. The equestrian or the, the military class, they were, they were up there, and so they had a lot more respect. They had a lot more money. Um, the patrician or, or plebeian classes, they were up at the top, but that's not where everybody was. Remember that Paul himself was a Roman citizen, and he kind of pulled this out of his back pocket once when he got in trouble, and he said, well, don't you know that I'm a, a Roman citizen after receiving a very kind beating from some... Uh, prison guard. And the prison guard, upon hearing that, he became nervous. Oh, I didn't know that you were a Roman citizen. Uh, he had a, a different class level than just the average everyday Jew that he was going out and beating. Uh, this was a Roman citizen who had different status, different level. And the majority of the Jews, they didn't share the same kind of status, the same kind of privilege that Paul had. Most of the Jews who were in Jerusalem, they were there being oppressed. Again, I think we think of Rome as being great because Rome was vast. And Rome was so vast an empire because they went in and they conquered different countries, different nations, ruthlessly. And they just kind of annexed them in. Uh, they would take this great big military force that they had and take them into uh, a city, into a country, and demolish them and say, you either die or you become Roman and you... Uh, become subjugated to our rule. And so they had uh, a different varying level of caste system. And they would go into these annexed countries like Israel, like the Church of Jerusalem, and they would impose harsh taxes on them. They would drain them of all their natural resources and send them back to Rome so that uh, Caesar could live a nice, cushy, comfortable life while everybody that's left back in Jerusalem was there suffering. Uh, having this oppression opposed upon them, imposed upon them. Uh, so not only did this church at Jerusalem have all these refugees that they had to care for and take care of, uh, and persecution by the Jews, oppression by the Romans, but remember I mentioned back in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, Paul was delivering funds to them because they had a, a great famine in the land. And surely it's likely that they still were experiencing some results from this famine even years later. And so there are a number of reasons why this church at Jerusalem was poor, why they were needy. 
and why Paul was reaching out to all these other churches saying, hey, we have to take up a collection for these saints who are at Jerusalem. We have to do something about this. And uh, I really love going through the Bible and kind of connecting the dots. And I like the fact that God didn't just drop down a a systematic theology book for us and, and give us everything in order, but he gave us real letters to real people, to real churches, uh, dealing with these real issues. And so we can kind of piece these pieces of scripture together like a puzzle. And we can go back and we can see how Paul mentioned this collection to the Corinthians at first in first Corinthians. And we can see, well, they must've been asking about it. So he had mentioned it before then we can go to Galatians and we can see that, uh, he was talking to the Galatians about the need in Jerusalem and, how that is connected even farther back to the Jerusalem council back in Acts 15. And uh, just to, to add to this, we can see that Paul even spoke about this need for this collection to the Romans. In Romans 15, 25, Paul says, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. And so he even mentions this collection, this serving of the saints to this church at Rome as well. And so asking ourselves, well, why is Paul writing to the Romans about this church at Jerusalem, what they're going through? Um, jumping on, the, on the, uh, the study we had this morning in Sunday school, we can see the need for missionaries to be informing those who are supporting them, to keep them up to date, to tell them what's going on. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is informing them of what he's doing, where he's going, and he's eliciting prayer from even the church at Rome. And so uh, I have a map on there. Can we throw up that map, Logan? And we can see on this map, if you look really hard and string your eyes, uh, down in the bottom right, that's where the church at Jerusalem is. And then all the way up on the upper left, that's where Rome is. That's far away. That's over a thousand miles away. And Paul is writing to them, keeping them informed about what is going on in the church of God, the broader church, the universal church of God, even over a thousand miles away because it's important to them, because they should be aware of it. It's not something that uh, is out of sight, out of mind. They need to be aware of what's going on, even a thousand miles away. And as Paul is writing to the Romans, back in Romans 15, he mentions even a third church, the third church that we're going to be looking at this morning, the church at Macedonia. And so in Romans 15, 26, he says, that for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So again, referring to this need at Jerusalem and how Macedonia and Achaia are seeking to help meet that need. Let's throw up that map one more time. And in the middle of that map, we can see, uh, yeah, right towards the middle, we can see that's where Corinth is, this church that Paul is writing to. And he's referring to the churches, plural, of Macedonia, up toward the center middle of that map. Uh, Let's go to the next map. Let's zoom in a little bit. And we can see that this region of, not that one, the next one, this region uh, of Macedonia is more of a region. And so within that region, we see a couple of cities that hopefully we recognize, Thessalonica and Philippi. And also within that region is the city of Berea. Remember, the Bereans were more noble because they studied their scriptures. And so uh, within Macedonia, there are several churches there. And what's interesting about this region is we actually know that Paul went to these places. He frequented 
Macedonia and Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. And not only that, but we have letters that Paul has written to these places. Three letters, two to Thessalonica and one to Philippi. And that's in addition to the book of Acts and the information that we have from Acts. So that's pretty exciting. Well, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, uh, is appealing to them to support the church at Jerusalem. And he's doing so by encouraging them to give well using the church at Macedonia as an example. So let's look once again at 2 Corinthians 8.1, where it says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches at Macedonia. So again, he's using them as an example. And he does so because uh, they are just exemplary in their, their giving. They are very generous as a church. And we see this in chapter 11, verse 9, that they support even Paul himself. It says in eleven nine, Paul says that when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. And when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So just like the missionaries now that we have, that we learned about this morning, how they're supported by other churches so they can go and they can minister to different people without being a burden to them. Paul was a, a missionary. He was a minister who was receiving support from the church at the churches at Macedonia. We often focus on Paul and highlight Paul and highlight uh, the, the Hudson Taylors of the world or the Amy Carmichaels, these great missionaries that we read about and we admire and uh, we can highlight them and do so spotlighting them without realizing the people that are behind them, the many supporters that come behind them. Not that the supporters are looking for some kind of acknowledgement or accolades, but we would do well to recognize that behind every selfless missionary, there are countless supporters who are just as selfless, uh, who are sacrificing their time and their money and their resources and praying for these missionaries who are going out. Uh, it's not just about Paul, but Paul is being supported by the generosity of this church at Macedonia. And what's particularly impressive about the Macedonians being willing to not only support Paul, but being willing to uh, help out the church at Jerusalem to be a part of this collection is the fact that they have or they had prior to coming to Christ some anti-Semitic tendencies. There was some racial division there amongst the the Macedonians and the Jewish people. Again, let's uh, look at another puzzle piece here as we look back at Acts chapter sixteen and Acts sixteen verse twelve. Paul is outlining his second missionary journey. And he is saying, from there we went to Philippi, which we now know is in Macedonia, right? Which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. So this is the setting. Paul is in Philippi, which is in Macedonia. And he goes on from here and he talks about how uh, he cast a, a demon out of a woman. And that wasn't really well accepted. So let's pick up down in verse 19 which says, but when her masters, this is the, the woman who had a demon cast out of her, when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So there, again, is some racial tension there between Macedonia and the Jews. And yet, we see that this church at Macedonia was willing to be involved in supporting the church at Jerusalem, which is amazing evidence of the transformation that takes place when Jesus does a work on somebody's heart. It's an amazing evidence of the unity of the universal church of God. Uh, and just think about how far this would go in restoring that relationship between the Macedonians and the Jews. If they're giving money for this church to help be supported, uh, think about how healing that would be and how much unity it would bring about for the, the Jews in Jerusalem to see, okay, well, this church over in Macedonia, they are investing in, in us. They are committed to us. They are caring about us. Uh, they have skin in the game, so to speak. When I was growing up, I, was, I got in a, a bit of trouble, um, at more than a bit, and uh, it was pretty often, I guess. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for me to come home and see a couple of cop, park, cop cars parked out in front of my house, well, the house next to or, or two doors down, because that's how they do it. They don't park right in front of your house because they know that they're there for you. But I knew that they were there for me, even when they were parked at my neighbor's house. The problem is I didn't know why they were there, what I had done to uh, precipitate them being there. I didn't plan on telling you that. But uh, I got in trouble when I was younger. And most of the time it was my fault. But every now and then I would get in trouble for something that I didn't actually do. And I remember one occasion when my dad sat me down, he said, you know what, uh, you, you just be honest with me. You tell me the truth. If you didn't do this, I'll, I'll back you up. I will, I'll go to jail myself if I have to so that you don't get in trouble for something that you didn't do. And I remember for, for years just having that understanding of my dad's got my back. Uh, he's there for me. And I'm sure that that's how the, the church at Jerusalem felt about this church at Macedonia. They had beef with before, but they're seeing all these funds coming in and being raised. And again, just the healing effect that that can have for somebody is uh, insurmountable. It's, uh, that's amazing to think about. Again, the unity that exists there. All right, well, uh, as we travel down this road and I am looking at my notes and looking at the time, uh, I think I'm going to take an off-ramp here and we'll come back next week and we'll talk about the, uh, the affection and affliction and poverty that took place in Macedonia and the, the joy that even came about as a result of that. We'll take a look at uh, the, the generosity of the Macedonians and the measure and manner and motive and means of their, their generosity. But as we wrap up, I want us to uh, consider, as we've already considered these three cities, this one church of God amongst these three cities in antiquity, all the way back in first century, let's consider our church here in Payson, Utah, the Church of God at Payson uh, in this 21st century, and what it is that we should take away from uh, these three different cities, what we can learn and apply from them to our society today, to our lives today.
And I think we have to ask ourselves how, uh, how unique Christian hospitality actually is. Because somebody might say, there's really not much difference in Christians being united together in Christ as there is from somebody being united together because of the, the, their favorite football team. Uh, there is some kind of small amount of uh, appreciation. We can say, oh, they, they have my same uh, logo on their, their shirt or their hat. And that brings about a, a certain sense of bond, right? Um, but the, the unity that we have in Christ far surpasses any other uh, hospitality that we might experience in life. Uh, because we've experienced a unique love in Christ. We have seen what it means for God to step into time, for God to become lower than the angels, for God to become a man, and to take upon himself our, our sin and our guilt and the punishment that we deserve for sinning against a holy God. We deserve death, eternal death. And Jesus took that upon himself. And he did that for a reason. And so that we could be with him for eternity because he is not just a loving God, but he is a just God. He has to punish sin. He is both just and the justifier. He is the one who makes us right with God. And in, in seeing that and experiencing that kind of love, we as Christians, we should be changed. We should have an a experience that is unique. We should have a, a love and a hospitality for other believers that is unique from the, the kind of unity that you might find between uh, a national association of Yahtzee players, right? That, um, yeah, they, they have some kind of unity amongst themselves. And if they saw somebody hurting who was part of the, the national Yahtzee association, maybe they would step up to do something about it. Maybe both of them would step up to do something about it. Uh, but we as Christians, we should be unique in our love for one another. And as we strive to be more intentional about our involvement with other Christians, uh, we should consider, starting with our own missionaries, how involved are we with them? When I mentioned the, the stat about a thousand Christians being killed in Nigeria, I got that stat from a podcast that I listened to called uh, The Worldview in Five Minutes. It's a great podcast. It really is just in five minutes. It's a great place to start to keep ourselves up to date with what is going on with other Christians around the world. We should be more concerned with how we can give and how we can bless others and how we can get and stack up for ourselves and store up treasures for ourselves on earth. And no matter what we're going through, what kind of uh, hardships we're going through, uh, remember these guys, they were going through legit persecutions, legit afflictions. We can realize that we have the the blessed love of Christ, that we can have joy in Jesus. We can count it all joy when we encounter various trials of many kinds, uh, knowing that the, the testing of our faith produces endurance, and that this endurance should have its perfect work in us so that we can be perfect and mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your love. We thank you for the unity that we have in you, that we are one in Christ. God, help us to realize that, help us to live that out, that we wouldn't be stuck in our own little bubbles, that we would, we would have a, a love for your body, a love for your people, and that that would be manifested not only through prayer, but uh, in very practical needs. God, thank you for your people. Thank you for this church body. Help us to be united together in you. Amen.